On this episode of the Peter Panda Podcast, we're headed to the southern tip of the Union to explore the East Foundation's El Sal Ranch with my good friends, the Honorable Trey Dyer and Dr. Jason Sawyer. The East Foundation is a Texas-based nonprofit that operates multiple working cattle ranches across the state while hosting a mosaic of science-based research projects and public educational initiatives. These guys are literally writing the book on today's progressive land stewardship while promoting research and conservation. From rangeland ecology to wildlife sciences, the East Foundation works on everything from cattle production to endangered ocelot research. So listen up. You're about to hear what's possible when you turn a working cattle ranch into a full-blown laboratory fueled by curiosity. When it hangs up there at like 75 degrees for, you know, 10 or 12 hours, it sort of tenderizes it. It's perfect. Accelerates the process. No cold shortening on that. Yeah, you guys don't have the luxury here in Texas no. of letting stuff hang and cure. No. It's a race against time, uh-huh. no matter what you're on. Unless you have a lot of money and walk-in coolers. Yeah, I was expecting one when I got it. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we could hang it inside and crank the AC down. <laughs> yeah, that might be our own version of that. Look at <laughs> we, all these rafters. We could. We put it inside a truck out there and just crank the AC all night. <laughs> That's our own version of uh, Cold a storage. walk-in cooler. Yeah. Hard on the seats. <laughs> just buckle them in. It's a, it's a rental. Yeah, it's a rental. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll turn it back in. Did you see that rental? It was the first time we got a car off. First time we ever got a car off Toro. You familiar with that? No, Toro. It's a. It's like a the Airbnb of car rentals. So like, people individuals can put their car up for rent, just like you would put your house up for rent on Airbnb. But it started as like a luxury thing. It was like, you want to drive a Ferrari for the weekend? It, like this luxury premium, like. You know, the guy down the street owns one and will rent it to you for $1,000 this weekend. But now it's turned into a much more blue-collar, bigger audience. Three-quarter ton Dodge Rams. That's what we got outside right now. And for the record, I didn't get that. I would have gone with the Ford Fiesta from Enterprise because mm-hmm. I'm trying to do things on a budget. Krista uh, assures me that that was the cheapest option. And then I didn't look into it too That's far after perfect. that. I was like, hey, it sounds, sounds cool. like we're going agree- to Texas. Agreeable solution for everybody. Uh-huh. Yeah, it sounds like we're going to Texas and we got a truck, and that that's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> when, I, when I pulled up and I saw that pickup, I I wasn't exactly sure. Like, did they drive from Montana? Yeah. Well, I I've met them at the parking lot of Hofbrau House, and I was like, "Where's your rental?" And they're like, <laughs> "That truck right there." <laughs> truck might get stopped at the checkpoint coming back north yeah it might there's y'all, a, there's y'all be a, safe though yeah. i think y'all pass yeah you'll be good that's what i heard yeah going south is they're not looking at you too Mm-mm. much going north, you can drive 100 miles an away hour from south. the border they might have more questions about what you're up to <laughs> well we're sitting here in south texas not only south texas the bottom of texas if texas is a tortilla chip with the triangle point pointed south. We are at the bottom of the tortilla chip. It's a pretty Is good any, analogy. Has anybody ever called Texas a tortilla chip? No, I, but they I, should. I might get offended by that. <laughs> but just to paint the, the mental picture, if Texas is a triangle and uh, there's a horizontal line at the top and one of the points of the triangle is pointing due south, we are at the tip of the triangle. We're, what, 
15 miles, 20 miles from Mexico? Probably more like 30. Yeah, 30. But but it's relative. I mean, you're almost a thousand miles from the northwest corner of Texas. So yeah, it it's a big state, man. Close. It's a big wild state. We were talking last night about. I didn't know this. I felt so ignorant when I realized this last night. You said Texas was a country before it was a state. That and it made perfect. Once you started laying out the history, I was like, oh, of course, yeah, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> so that's how that worked <laughs> out. Uh, Texas, wild place, man. You know. I've been coming to Texas quite a bit the last three years now, um, which is how Trey and I got to know each other. But prior to that, I had very limited to no experience in Texas. And I was probably guilty of one of those people to write off Texas as like, ah, that's their lazy people go hunting and prided myself on being a not a Texas hunter. And then I started coming to Texas and I've done several different hunts in Texas now with several different awesome people and i love texas i love the weather in the winter time and the springtime i love all the hunts i love all the people down here uh i got a real love affair with texas and we're back yet again um last time i was here was call fest yeah uh which would in southwest texas is that what we call that considered southwest yeah, yeah. southwest texas and this would be eagle pass south area. south texas What's the name of the ranch we're on? Uh, East Foundation's El Sal's Ranch. The El Sal Ranch, which you mentioned before, this is part of the East Foundation, which is what we're going to talk about tonight here. And if you're curious who I'm talking with, I'm with my friend Trey Dyer and my new friend Jason Sawyer. And both of you work for the East Foundation. And we're going to go into what the East Foundation is uh, and what you all do for it and the history of it and kind of the outlooks and stuff. And some of the projects and research and things y'all do. Uh, in a nut, and I want to come back to that. But in a nutshell, the East Foundation is a big uh, land stewardship. Y'all nonprofit, a big land stewardship nonprofit who has land with holdings, six different ranches mm -hmm. yep. across Southern Texas, totaling over two hundred and seventeen thousand acres. That's right. A lot of dirt, and there's a whole history there. But six different ranches are owned by this nonprofit, the East Foundation, and um, we're on one of those ranches right now, El Sal Ranch. And I came down here to hang out with Trey, go nil guy hunting with Trey, and partake in some of your guys' conservation work and stewardship work tomorrow that uh, involves some culling of some non-native animals and the utilization of those animals and turning that into dollars for the nonprofit and productivity for the land. Um, and we're going to get into the East Foundation and all of that. But what we're going to talk about first is our day today. Because <laughs> we haven't had a chance. I just met Jason uh, 20 minutes ago while we were stringing up a nil guy out on the meat pole. Uh, spoiler alert, I got one. <laughs> <laughs> but Finally. It, but it, was, it wasn't it was that simple. It was a awesome day. It was one of the coolest days I've had a field and in Texas ever. Um, so we got here last night right at dark. Just enough time. We had like a 30-minute evening drive just mm -hmm. around the, the ranch house here and ended up I ended up getting two 
two pigs last night. So started off with a bang. Got two got two pigs last night. Um, you kept them. Yeah, I cut them up, which was <laughs> not not weird to me. No. Um, and then woke up today and had just the coolest day seeing this ranch. So I had this in my mind. I had this idea that Nilgai hunting was going to be pretty easy and you drive around and you see a lot of Nilgai and you pick one out and you shoot one. And I think that is what a lot of Nilgai hunts kind of go, boil down as, but that's not how it was today. We started our day touring up to the north end of the ranch and to the eastern edge of the ranch, which is the Gulf of Mexico, and ultimately drove over 50 miles today in the Ranger and never left the ranch. Right. And so it was a full day of touring around and seeing different parts of the property, uh, seeing different ecosystems and habitats, uh, a lot of different animals and species. Uh, and it was just, it was sensory overload. Everything from picking up sheds nonstop to, uh, well, we picked up 18, white, 18, 18 whitetail sheds today. Yeah. Not even trying, which is mind-blowing to me. I don't think I've picked 18 whitetail sheds in my whole life. So that was wild. So you're constantly kind of like looking at the ground while you're driving around, finding <laughs> these, these road sheds. But we saw everything from the native species of whitetail and javelina and a dozen different birds of prey um turkey to what yeah the the rio turkey to some of the non-native species as well which included everything from feral hogs to uh nilgai to even a lechwe yeah. Red lechway, is that what we call them? Red lechway, I think is what they are. Yeah, which was a bit of a surprise to see here. They're not supposed to be on no, this property. No, they're not ours. <laughs> so it's a 28,000-acre low-fence ranch. So uh, the lechway were not, were not part of this ranch to begin with, but they made their way here from some neighbor with a, a shitty fence, I guess. <laughs> but they were cool to see. They were really beautiful animals, and we saw four of them. Uh, we saw armadillo today. Armadillo? That's roadrunners? Roadrunners. Jackrabbit? Yes. We didn't see any quail. We didn't see any quail. No. A lot of doves. It was just, it was a safari mm -hmm. of sorts. It, everywhere you looked, it was teeming with life. And it didn't happen by accident. It happened by a lot of the hard work and the history that this East Foundation and you guys have put into this place, as well as the other ranches. And it was incredible. I mean, I've I've gone on some different hunts and seen some places, and this was just I say it was sensory overload. Everywhere you look, there's a gobble, there's a strutting turkey, a gobbling turkey. There's a group of white-tailed. There's we flushed some doves. There was an armadillo. There's a darn lechwe and some nil guy over here. <laughs> oh, here's some pigs. Reroute real quick. Now we're pig hunting for ten minutes. Now we're back on the nil guy. Now we're over. It was just nonstop, action-packed, amazing uh, experience today in some some of the most beautiful habitat I've been in Texas for sure. Like I said, didn't happen by accident. Um, from the controlled burns you guys do to all the different 
land stewardship projects and uh, research assistance you do with different universities and stuff. There's so much going on here that results in what I experienced today. But back to our Nilgai hunt. We uh, didn't have that layup Nilgai hunt that I thought I might have, which I didn't want. Yeah. I think I... Like, we could have had that. When I left, when we left the house this morning, I was like, man, I'd really like to see most of the ranch before we just pop a nil guy and get busy butchering and uh, lo and behold 52 miles later in about eight hours um this afternoon we finally see you know after several different stalks and hikes and touring around different parts of the ranch we finally find a group of bulls and uh they saw us before we saw them which was the story of the nil guy today mm -hmm. i was impressed by the nil guy it was uh, their eyesight and their spookiness far exceeded what I expected. Yeah. Um, I thought, yeah, I did not expect them to be as spooky as they were. They were very spooky. Um, and I saw a lot of Neil guy today running away from me. And so this group that we saw was probably eight, eight, ten bulls in it. They were, man, they were had to have been half a mile three quarters mm -hmm. a mile away yeah pegged us and took off running but they were kind of flanking us so as soon as they got out of sight we started flanking them and we had to have walked a mile or so kind of paralleling them and flanking them trying to meet up where we thought we were going to intersect them and we didn't and it was like we're a day late and a dollar short on this one yeah and we did a big u-turn around this brush patch heading back to our vehicle still got to go half mile back to the vehicle 50 yards in front of me outruns three bull nil guy from my left to right uh and they they were just as surprised as we were so i took a knee and these things i mean i had to it had to have been a hundred yard shot yeah 100 yards are in i mean it was it was close 100 yard shot yeah, yep. Well, it was far enough for me to mess it up. <laughs> I uh Yeah, I think it was your rifle. Huh? Yeah, that's what yeah. pretty sure mm -hmm. it wasn't me. So the first shot on that rifle is always off and then the rest of them are I think that you had to foul the barrel up. Yeah, it was a fouling yeah, shot. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> well, long story short, I took a crack shot at the biggest bull and missed him. And uh he ran about 20 yards, did a U-turn and looked back. And then I thumped him, and I'm proud to say I, I stoned him on that um, one, and we got a great, mm -hmm. great Nilgai bull hanging out on the meat pole right now. And I'm extremely, extremely grateful and excited and lucky to have done that today with you. So I thank you. Mm -hmm. That was great. I'm um, excited to carve him up and take him back to Montana and eat on him. It was just such a cool day. We still got some work to do, skinning him and butchering him up. But um, it's it was just—it it, was incredible, man. Yeah, it was it's incredible. Worth it. I've never had it. I've never ate it before. What I like is, uh, I feel like all the best things, whether it be a pronghorn antelope or uh, a axis deer, they're so good. But you get like this little pile of meat. Nil guy's like, oh, it's so good, and it fills your darn <laughs> freeze. It's like elk. It, or yeah, something. grab another cooler because. Yeah, exactly. What do you think the live weight on that bull is? 
man, people lie about this all the time. Yeah, I was going to say four. Yeah, four, four twenty-five. Four hundred and twenty-five pounds. Th- there's been a lot of five hundred plus pound dill guys shot. There's been a lot of two hundred <laughs> pound mountain lions. You know, <laughs> but I'd say a safe bet's four hundred for yeah. sure. Well, it's an incredible place, uh, and tomorrow we're participating in more nil guy uh calling tomorrow which will be a little bit more professionally done than us driving around trying to get nil guy there'll be a helicopter calling happening on this ranch um so these are non-native species and the east foundation is working to preserve this ranch for a more native landscape uh and mosaic of mammals and the Nil guy do not belong here. So I've got a lot to talk about, but tell me the, the history of the nil guy, why, why it's here. How did it get here? Well, you know, nil guy are, I mean, they're really, as you've said, a really amazing creature. And their scientific name is interesting in itself. So their, their scientific name is Vocephalus tragocamelus. Good Lord. Which is four. It, it, the reason it's interesting is there's it's four words put together. So the boss part at the very beginning is is for cattle, right? Like that's the like a bovine. Reference. Yeah, or like you know the species name for cattle for European cattle is Bos taurus, and so the boss part of that is the genus of cattle. So that's the the Latin name for cattle. The ephalus part at the end is is Greek for deer, and then trago is goat. And, and then the last part of their name is Camelus, which is what it sounds like, camel. Because if you look at one, it looks kind of like a blend. Combination of all those of things. Of all of those things, and so that's why they named it that. If you don't know what a nil guy is, it's a 400-pound a uh, cow elk size antelope who originates from Pakistan and India. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has a lot of similarities <laughs> to anatomically i think it has a lot of similarities to like a buffalo or a mountain goat or a giraffe and what i mean by that is it's very long-legged uh, it has a hump over its front shoulders and when it runs it's got that rocker motion uh, which you really only see if you if you go youtube search watching a mountain goat run or a giraffe run we'll just skip that mm-hmm. youtube search <laughs> nil guy running you'll know exactly what i'm talking about they're kind of in the same rocker. group with the African antelope, like kudu. Boy, they mm-hmm. reminded me a lot of kudu. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen a I've never been to Africa. <laughs> but uh, we saw one yep. this morning. It was running away from us. And it actually jumped a fence in front of us, which is n- abnormal. Mm-hmm. I come to find out they like dipping under nets. Uh, fences, I mean. But anyways, as this thing cleared the fence, I was like... I was like, damn kudu. <laughs> yeah, if I didn't know better. I'd have told you I just saw a kudu jump a fence <laughs> with no horns. Yeah, so, you know, how do you get from India to Texas? And Yeah, so back to my question. Why, why are they here in South Texas if they come from India? So they, they were originally brought to the United States as zoo specimens. And, mm. and, in the, and this is, you know, really a compelling story about wildlife conservation and management in, in America in general and Texas in particular. But... You know, shortly after the turn of the century, and I mean the last century, so, you know, in the early 1900s, wildlife populations across the U.S. had really been diminished. 
and you know for a variety of reasons and, and south texas was no different but name the biggest factors in why wildlife wasn't doing well was unregulated hunting and market hunting market hunting and you we know, just wiped them out hunting in some places and so you know this is even today this is a re- fairly remote part of the world yeah and so you know westward expansion in the united states people hunted to survive and so hunting pressure was part of that there was also you know a series of significant droughts and and this part of texas you you mentioned kind of the tip of the tortilla chip there's really no perennial live water um, from corpus christi south pretty pretty arid uh, uninviting place for your average large mammal and so so you know a whole combination of factors kind of resulted I mean, some of them induced by man and, and some not, but resulted in, in diminishment of the wildlife populations that existed here. And Caesar Clayburg, who was uh, operated the Norris Division of King Ranch, which is just north of where we're sitting today, um, it is recognized as a, a primary mover in wildlife management and conservation even today he's got a nickname or uh what are they called? the father of con or um he's got a, something to the tune of uh moniker the fa like the father of conservation or something like that he's got a great people kind of give him recognition but that's yeah. caesar and so he he actually you know there um in the in the 19th century in the 1800s you know this was actually the southern range of pronghorn antelope and you know which aren't antelope i suppose but they are to me because i'm from texas but (laughs) they uh and but they they had been depleted from this area sometime before that and caesar clayberg was really interested in in trying to replenish wildlife populations you know even deer had been diminished pretty substantially yeah and so he found these these nilgai antelope that were being exhibited at zoos in other parts of the country and he tried a number of other you know non-native species as well and introduced them at the norris division as a way really to try to replenish or augment native populations Hmm. and you know none of them worked except nilgai antelope which you know because of their life history and i guess their adaptation um, turn out to be pretty well adapted to fill an ecological niche here in South Texas. They were the robust enough kind of uh, stepchild of South Texas. They're like these these things right. do really well here. Maybe even better than they do at home. Right. And in fact, we we actually Nilgai are still a little mysterious. I mean, relative to other species, you know, consider white-tailed deer and the amount of research and information that we have on white-tailed deer yeah. in america um, we know more about nilgai in texas than we know about nilgai in india yeah that's that's not a surprise to me i mean that's and and even at that you know they're still a little bit mysterious but they've been very persistent in the region they're not cold tolerant at all that's what i heard and so they're they're pretty well contained to this part of the state because the you know, even though Texas in general doesn't have severe winters, um, they can't tolerate winter much north of Corpus Christi. So surprising me so for how tough they are, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for how sturdy that <coughs> animal is. I, uh, 
I, it's so surprising to me that they don't do well in cold, especially when in my head I'm quick to like compare them to a mountain goat. Well, the other thing that's interesting about them that, that I guess we don't probably think about enough is is they're actually really sensitive to disturbance. And so, you know, you mentioned today they have really phenomenal eyesight and they can see you from a long ways away. And Incredible. And they'll leave pretty fast. And and so they uh, you don't see a lot of Nilgai roadkill. Like none. I was told it's almost like almost a, a non-thing. <laughs> and some of that is just because cars on a highway, that – that level of disturbance they're sensitive enough to that they'll avoid it that's incredible they they rarely will cross a fence and as you mentioned before they're notorious fence damagers Mm -hmm. um, on interior fences on ranches but they very rarely cross a fence on a highway yeah i suppose if you evolve avoiding tigers Right. The highway is an easy one to just <laughs> to pass to skip that one. And and so, you know, all of those all of those features make them really well suited to this this part of Texas where it's pretty undeveloped and there's large intact expanses of habitat that are kind of a mixture of escape cover and open grasslands and part of the reason that this part of the state still looks this way is because of cattle ranching kind of the dominant use of these rangelands and so it's kind of created the the opportunity for nilgai which are intermediate feeders right they're 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 not as much of a browser as a deer but they're a little more of a browser than a cow Hmm. and so they kind of fill this intermediary niche and it's that combination of things has allowed them to be really persistent and expand their range across South Texas. I read somewhere there's a estimated population of 30,000 Nilgai in uh, North America. Yes, sir. And Trey had told me that there's anywhere from one to 2,000 on a given day on this ranch alone. Uh, so they do very well down here. They found a great new home here. Uh, but all that being said, they're still a non-native species. So according to what perspective you want to take on things, uh, as far as what a landscape should look like, um, non-native species often get get crucified first, and uh, you know that and the pigs. Um, they are at the end of the day a non-native species, but I feel like um, they've got kind of that honorary native status at some point and i don't they've kind of earned their way in Mm -hmm. yeah and it's interesting we were trey and i were talking about you know if 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 you could press a button and get rid of all of them would you and it's like what matters who you ask matters who you ask matters maybe what day you ask them on Mm -hmm. um because that's not a that's not going to happen um so maybe it's just not even a question that you can yeah, and I, I think I told you it also matters who who's all going to press the button. Yeah. Right? Like, for us, we would say, you know, probably yes. Let's have – let's just no, – no non-natives. But if not everybody pressed the button, now we're irrelevant to our peers in the fact that we don't have research to conduct on a, a species that's – prevalent on neighboring ranches yeah even if you guys got rid of them here yeah 
it's still going to be a relevant part of the ecosystem mm -hmm. all around you. Right. right. Um, and I think the East Foundation is really interesting, uh, interesting group because you guys do focus on this this mosaic of wildlife management, land stewardship, ranching, um, and there's you guys are the first to say there's a lot of players at the table. There's a lot of people here that all use the same dirt, a lot of animals that use the same dirt, a lot of different things going on. Uh, and you don't have this narrow, narrow mindset. Uh, when you look at these ranches, you guys work on, um, I have in my notes here, ranching science and education. Those are seem to be the three pillars, the East foundation, uh, is that, are those just key points from the mission statement or are those just kind of your, uh, the, the three things that the foundation focuses on the most? Yeah, that, I mean, that comes directly from our mission statement, but I think it, it, it's more than a mission statement in the fact that that's our three areas that we concentrate our, our, uh, our work on. So like you said, ranching, working cattle ranch, that's, that is kind of first and foremost in the East foundation's, uh, mission and goals is to be a working, continue to be a working cattle ranch. Like that, that was the East family's tradition. I mean, that was their heritage. They were a ranching family. So first and foremost, the East foundation is going to be a working, operating cattle ranch yeah that that's a good segue into some of the history of what's going on here so tell me who who was the east family who is the east family uh and what what's kind of the history of how this foundation came to be and how these ranches got so big and uh, some of the things that got us where we are today so the east family started the the matriarch i guess you'd say of, of the east family it was alice clayberg East. Uh, Alice Clayberg was Richard King's granddaughter of the King Ranch. Um, and Alice married Tom East. Uh, when Alice and Tom got married, uh, Tom had already put together some acreage over in Jim Hogg County, and Alice and Tom continued to ranch and uh, basically acquire more acreage, put together more land um, for cattle ranching until uh, they had children which is Tom Jr., um, Robert, and then uh, Lisa or Alice um, were their three three children. Tom Jr. got married and had, had children and ran the Santa Fe Ranch for the family. And Alice, um, Lisa, and Robert stayed on the San Antonio Viejo Ranch and continued to run that. And so uh, Robert and, and, and Lisa were, were never married and never had children. And uh, when Robert passed away in 2007 he was the the last heir um that bequeathed his estate to uh, a trust and then that trust was charged with setting up a foundation for uh cattle for ranching and wildlife research yeah and so that was in 2007 and um you know with any kind of trust and and estate planning it takes a while to get things going yeah that's what you said it was it was somewhere in the ballpark four or five years before the foundation right. was so structured and running consider 2012 kind of the birth year of the east foundation as it exists today so everybody's probably heard of the king ranch and i think it's so interesting that these like cattle dynasties these ranching dynasties that are over 100 years old it it's like game of thrones or something it's like these families marry into each other and I don't know. I, I thought it was interesting when I first read that Tom had married Alice and Alice came from 
the King Ranch family. I was like, no kidding. <laughs> that and then I I was like surprised by it, and I was like, that makes perfect sense, yeah. I guess. Like, hey, we got <laughs> we have this giant ranch. You have that giant ranch. Our kids go to school together. Ah, oh, they're married. Now we have the next generation. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's oversimplifying it, but. You well, at that, at that period of time, it, it wasn't like this was a really densely populated area. So yeah, I suppose the, the if dating you lived pool, here, you probably own some acreage. Smaller, yeah. yeah, but it just acreage to like the tune of Ted Turner status. Like it, it's mind-boggling to me uh, to be no. on a twenty-eight thousand acre ranch and know that that's one tenth, around ten percent of the East Foundation's dirt, <laughs> roughly, maybe a little less. Yeah. And, and you know, I think I think a really important part of that story and and how these ranches were put together over time is that, and, and even King Ranch and the other large historic ranches in this region, and you know, this really is the birthplace of American ranching. I mean, probably lots of places want to claim that, but you know, they were putting these ranches together, not the East family specifically, but you know, the Kennedys and the the King. Richard King and the Claybergs, you know, were and Armstrong were, were originating these ranches in the 1850s. Yeah, that's incredible. And, and that that coincided with uh, uh, would have been what war was going on down here. But well, the you know at, the, at that time, um, Texas had Texas was admitted as a state in the United States in 1845. Oh, wow. So just a few years later, um, a lot of these ranches down here were, were being assembled. And then uh, around that same time, or just prior to that, was actually the the war between the United States and Mexico that was really fought over um, a treaty defining international boundaries, you know, between what's now Texas and Mexico all the way up to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yeah and sort of disputed boundaries and and the resulting treaty that's kind of what defined the southern border of the united states as we know it today so all of that was going on the land where we're sitting right now was absolutely disputed territory is that right mexico claimed the nueces river which which enters the gulf at corpus christi and runs up north of us Mm -hmm. you crossed it driving down here Mm -hmm. um at near the town of three rivers and uh, so they claimed everything south of there as being Mexico. And, of course, Texas said, no, the Rio Grande is the border. And so where we're, we're going to fight about it today was was absolutely disputed territory, even at the time that these ranches were being assembled. Wow. That had been a little unsettling <laughs> being <laughs> lit ranching here. I right. mean, like, man, it's a little bit of like a Ukraine situation. <laughs> yeah. like, but. You know, it, it's the the history of it's fascinating, and and the thing that I think is really compelling about that, and East Foundation's an example, is those families were were absolutely committed to maintaining land, and they did it through ranching. What do you mean by maintaining land? Assembling these these large ranches and landscapes, and in their entirety, and keeping them. Yeah, right. mm-hmm. because what do we Through. see today? The division of everything. Right. Uh, small, you get, you know, you have what started as a hundred acre field <coughs> turns into a subdivision, turns into smaller than that. Um, and so, for for a family to really just through absolute will and determination 
and and through cattle ranching be able to to hold on through yeah. devastating drought i mean and with cattle ranching being the, the backbone depression. the backbone to everything they were doing right and and so you know it's really a testament to their will and and speaks a little bit to i, I mean i think why they were committed to the idea of, of creating what ultimately became East Foundation because yeah. that would ensure that the thing that they had dedicated generations to would remain intact. Yeah, and you see that all over the country, I think, with uh, large landowners putting a lot of their properties into a trust of sorts or foundations of sorts saying, you know, I don't know what my great-great-grandchild is going to carve this up into. I'm going to ensure it remains intact and with some of my goals and philosophies by putting it into a trust of like with like-minded people and so you know circling back to the nil guy question i mean part of that history and trajectory of of these families is is in a way why the nil guy antelope is suited to this environment because because it hasn't been fragmented you know i grew up kind of on the north edge of the hill country of texas and and I love it, right? Every native Texan loves the hill country. It's we're yeah, it's pretty beautiful. Required to, or they kick us out. But, <laughs> um, you know, and Trey's family's just from yep. just east to where my family's from, and you know, but that part of the state, as iconic as it is, everybody loves it. So that means it's all been broken up into pretty small tracks. Everybody wants a piece. Well, and then you you pair that with Texas's habit of high fencing things and creating these for a large mammal a stone wall barrier right mm. your ecosystem you know not only did the real estate get divided but the habitat and the ecosystem gets divided and so so you know in a way the the things that 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 these families were really committed to and is part of of our mission right is the stewardship of these lands forever it's pretty progressive thinking for back in the i mean in an era of market hunting when wildlife really wasn't valued on a the scale we do today or maybe just differently valued uh not protected uh or ensured a future in an era of that for these landowners to think ahead like that and not only want to preserve that but uh encourage it and augment it and bring in species that thrive here and i don't know i think i think there's just really something honorable about Mm -hmm. just the era not only did they have that really cool conservative outlook you had it at a time when no one had that outlook so i don't know well and it, it also ties in with modern day east foundation uh you know one of our not really in our mission statement but one of the things that we that we kind of preach is private land stewardship. And so obviously Texas is 98% private, God, right? That's wild. Um, so you're, you're, you have to have private land stewardship. but Man- Mandatory. It's yeah. mandatory, but not everybody's going to do it the same way or the necessarily the right way or, or, or however you look at it. But, you know, with, with the East foundation, our, 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 one of our main things is private land stewardship. And, and with these large tracts of land, you can do that to scale, right? We're, we're, we and our neighbors are able to, 
to do things on a on a you know scale basis for for conservation and and use so um yes and that's thing, because of the things you guys do pioneers. is uh is replicable in other areas is what you're saying right yeah right it's not a snap it's not a uh, postage stamp look at a, a problem and a solution right well, or, and i think not just replicable i mean we certainly want that right we want to we want to discover and evaluate things that enable people to make better decisions for the stewardship of their land and and so that's replicable i guess you know and reliable yeah but but also it's the the context of that is important it has to be relevant hmm and so, like I said, these these lands that we operate on were put together by ranchers for ranching, and and really the the kind of multiple use mindset, you know, of range management, which that concept wasn't really invented until you know seventy five years after a lot of these places were put together. But um, this notion of multiple use, well, they certainly recognized that, but but ranching was the backbone. And these, the lands around us remain, you know, ranching is an important component of, of yeah. these landscapes. Uh, it, it, yeah, absolutely. I said something this morning. I was like, man, if you guys were trying to preserve everything back to native state or something, why wouldn't you just get rid of all the cows? And you're like, man, that is a, what, a cardinal sin to what we stand so the, for. The worst thing you could call east foundation is a wildlife preserve in our eyes hmm. we are not a preserve and yeah I, I wouldn't call it that right? either because you guys so staunchly believe in the ranching element as being the keystone piece almost to the rest of the equation right. in fact these these landscapes here and really in in many places in the united states you know, these are dynamic systems. You can't just lock them up in a box and throw away the key and think you're going to come back in 50 years and it it magically looks the same as the day you left it. Things like change. Like the American Constitution. Absolutely. We yeah. got This is a living, breathing <laughs> landscape. Yep. And so, and you know, they evolved with herbivory and fire and all these other things. And so, so really for us, this idea of, yeah, we want things to be replicable. We want to enable decision-making by other land stewards, you know, help them make the best decisions for their own business because it's private, right? They get mm -hmm. to decide. Um, we would never presume to tell anybody what they should do. Mm -hmm. We would like to be able to... But you can lead by example. To demonstrate, yeah. right, what the outcomes of our management decisions are and let people replicate that as it suits their purpose. But it has to be relevant. If, if we weren't ranching here no ranch would would care what we said or did yeah absolutely that makes that makes perfect sense to me you would lose <laughs> relevancy to uh to your neighbors in the surrounding you know you guys are a, a lot you got a lot of dirt but it's a very small piece of the pie when you zoom out and look at it's a big texas it's, it's a big place man jason you are the chief science officer Yes, sir. foundation that's that's what they say where'd you go to school uh i went to college at texas a&m got did. my bachelor's degree seems like everybody goes to a&m around here <laughs> you went to you got your bachelor's at a&m yes sir and what was it a degree of i got my bachelor's degree was in rangeland ecology with an emphasis on ranch management and then i went to graduate school for 
for two more degrees. I, I'm not that smart, so it took a long time, I guess. But in uh, at New Mexico State University in Las Cruces, and okay, worked in New Mexico for several years after that. You did, yes, sir. Uh, for a government group or a private group? Actually, I was a faculty member at New Mexico State University. I was. Um, I had a responsibility as a state beef cattle extension specialist and uh, a researcher. So you, from day one of college, or maybe before, you have had rangeland management and livestock and wildlife management all in the same in the same it's, cup. It's been important to me. Um, if I was going to be really honest about it, which I guess hey, I go for be. it. Um, you know, I, I spent I had the good fortune to spend about 20 years in academic roles of various kinds, you know, as a professor, researcher, manager of lands for public entities, things like that. You have a uh, PhD, don't you? Yes, sir. Dr. Sawyer. You know what that stands for, right? You know, last time, I feel like, I feel like I'm talking to the, or the police are interrogating me. Nobody's called me sir this much in my whole life. It's a Texas thing. Forced habit. Like I'm in trouble. Yeah. Sorry. Back to you being super smart. Uh, you what are, what are you a doctor of? Um, my PhD is in in beef cattle nutrition and management, mm -hmm. and or properly it's in rangeland nutrition. But I emphasize beef cattle. Yeah. So I I looked for a graduate program. Like I said, my my bachelor's degree was in range science or rangeland ecology, and um, I was interested in the livestock production aspects of that. Historically, that was that's always been my interest in. So I, I looked for a graduate program where I could study livestock production in a rangeland setting and was able to find that. You know, you, you can find that in the western part of the United States primarily. Sure. New Mexico, Wyoming, Montana. Yeah. And you're talking about just cattle ranching on a giant landscape. Right, on, on native rangelands and yeah. you know, extensive systems. and. Um, that's that's always what I've loved and been interested in and hmm. wanted to be involved with and the one job. Why is I, that? Did you grow up ranching? You know, I I grew up associated with ranching. Okay, I guess is a fair way to say it. So mm -hmm. it's a generation skipping trait in my family apparently. But yeah, yeah. My my grandparents ranched in right in the middle of Texas, like I said, the northern part of the hill country, and I was mentored by my grandfather and thought very highly of him and it was a heritage it was a heritage and a, a tradition that you were very invested in from the very beginning i cared about like, it yeah but the one job i never thought i would have or really wanted to have was college professor and but you did that i did that for a really long time i bet you were a pretty cool professor and uh and it was rewarding you know i'm i'm, I'm a curious person i like learning things and um, about things I'm interested in so it's been a blessing to me and having the good fortune to become involved with East Foundation over the last few years um, has has really been a I, I mean I tell people it's sort of a unicorn you know this is a really unique organization it, so it is and the more I learn about it the more the more unicorn like it sounds and the more I love it yeah and so for for somebody like me you know I, I could have never imagined the opportunity to, to do what I get to do now. Um, 
because I just didn't think it existed, you know. Yeah, I can't believe you, you feel like you like came into your dream role or you found a dream job of some I, sort. Absolutely. That's cool. And, you know, and I think the doesn't feel like work when you love it this much. Right. Yeah. You know, and, the, and the, the things that I've had the good fortune to be able to do and the people I've been able to work with over the last, you know, 25 years um, have probably helped me to appreciate it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of like if you give your, you know, you give your kids something that, that you think is really valuable, they think it's an old war out thing, you know. and Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. With a little perspective, you appreciate those things in a different way. I have a quote written down of yours that I saw of you in an interview where you said the, uh, and if I mis misquote this, you can correct me. You said the East Foundation Science Program are rigorous methods of discovery to help us to enable our educational efforts and inform our ranch management. I thought that was beautifully said and really kind of summarized, uh, you know, your, your focus with the science program and the backbone of it all coming back to the educational efforts the East Foundation uh, supports and to inform ranch management decisions on a rangeland uh, level. I thought it all it, it tied it all together really really well for me in my head when I heard that that the wildlife, the livestock, and the rangelands are inseparable. Right. That they're three they're three different things that need to be managed together. It's an integrated system. Yeah, and I think uh, we're guilty of you know as across the country maybe trying to divide those often, and the East Foundation like really. It seems to me that you all really pride yourselves on not trying to untangle that uh, connection and that 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 is the reality of the world you all live in down here that you don't have the wildlife without the cattle you don't have the cattle without the wild like we need this is all these are all woven together right. and we like it that way and and if we don't take care of the land mm -hmm. then none of those other things you're gonna lose it all are. yeah so you know, it, it made me it made me feel really pleased when you were talking about your day today, and you know that that you. It was a special day, man. The habitat and seeing these things, and and you're seeing that you know through the eyes of somebody who's passionate about wildlife, and and the thing that made me feel the best about that is if I if I put myself on a different side of the table and thought, well, I'm I'm thinking about this as a ranch operator, the fact that you could come to a working ranch right i mean this this ranch is an important part of our production we operate it yeah cattle production didn't <coughs> stop in 2007 and that that your perspective on that right it fits exactly within the span of of management for that purpose as well and and that's a message i think is lost on a lot of folks hmm. you, i think people look at the world one-dimensionally a lot of times you know if somebody who's really passionate about um about, about wildlife or like i got a deer birds. lease and we've got big deer and i focus on deer and you keep those stinking cows out of here right and it's like man it's it's more complicated than that and these things really do work together and and you know and by the same token and it really realistically any ranch in texas and in most of the western united states today um, where ranches exist it would 
would admit freely that wildlife management has to be an important component of, of their business. And that for all of these things to work, you know, for the positive outcomes that we desire, we want good, healthy landscapes that support healthy wildlife populations and commercial cow operations because all of those things together ensure prosperity. And, and if you can ensure prosperity, then you're likely to ensure that that ranch continues to serve the ecological function that it serves. And, you know, without that, right, so you lose any one of those dimensions, maybe, maybe because you're trying really hard to make one of the other ones better, mm. you know. So we get rid of the cows because we want the habitat to be better. But now we've lost a primary source of revenue that allows us to do management intervention to make the landscape better. Yep. And, and the result is, is that by, by getting rid of the thing we – we valued the least, we devalue the things we valued the most. And so, so it's really important to us to, to, to talk about that and to help people see that because again, the world unfortunately is a really polarized one dimensional place these days. Yeah, absolutely. And y'all focus on the, the beauty of the mosaic of it all down here. Right. And that, that, you know, our, you know, not just us, but we think, you know, most most operators um, really are committed to being the best stewards they can. You know, if you ask a ranch, and we've done a lot of things related to sustainability. Mm. If, if you ask most private land operators what that means to them. I, I was just about to ask you what that meant. They'll, they'll say that it means the capacity to to take what I was, was given, mm -hmm. stewardship over, do my best to make it better than I found it so that I can pass it on to the next generation. And so, you know, that's a, that's a pretty decent operating definition, I think, of what yeah. it means to be sustainable. And, and most of them, most everybody wants that, you know, so so we would like to to try to find ways for ourselves and for others to to be able to do that yeah so tell me about some of the the programs and things these foundations doing uh on a, on a zoom out and thirty thousand feet looking in and then i want to talk about more specific things like some of the the burns that mm -hmm. i saw today and but uh bigger picture programs and goals of the foundation tell me about that well you know, you, you kind of mentioned it, so like our mission statement is to advance land stewardship through ranching science and education, and, and it's pretty concise, you know, but we really are motivated to improve land stewardship, and the ways that we do that are by, by operating a, a These ranch, properties, yep. By doing research so that we can enable better decision-making through discovery and the documentation of the outcomes of our decisions. Right? But not just your own research. You all enable a lot of university students and different professionals. Absolutely. You seem very inviting to anybody trying to advance uh, a, a field of research that would involve this habitat. You know, nobody lives in the world alone. And... Um, and so we have... Sometimes I wish I could. <laughs> as desirable as that means. Yeah, it turns out you can't do it. But, you know, we, 
we want to approach these problems and challenges and questions with a degree of humility. We don't know everything, but there are a lot of a lot of people around us that know things. And so we are the nation's first agricultural research organization, and that's sort of a tax title, you know. Hmm. But but what that means is that we the way we execute that that mission is in conjunction with land-grant university systems, agricultural colleges, and other agencies and organizations that that have the same interests as yeah. us. So all of our research efforts are in conjunction with or in partnership with university or agency partners. We, we rely on, right? I saw a Texas A&M truck today, mm-hmm. middle right. of nowhere. So, so here at El Sal is a really great example. So, so this ranch um, is, you know, the way we kind of collect and evaluate project effort. Um, some, some projects are specific to one location. Some span all of our ownership. Sure. Mixture of things. If we looked at everything that happens here at El Sal's, um, about 50% of our efforts involve this ranch in some way. Is that right? And currently down, you know, at the very south end of the ranch, we have a, a headquarters facility, and there's a dozen graduate students living there right now. Yeah, I know. I saw some of them today, <laughs> all doing different stuff. Right, and, and a lot of them are here because this time of year, um, they come and do a, a variety of, of surveys, ecological surveys, that help us understand sort of the ecological impacts and outcomes of the management that we implement on the ranch and you mentioned like prescribed fire being yep one of those. yeah um and so we've seen some of that today uh, i just this popped my head y'all have turned this beautiful operating cattle ranch into like a laboratory into a into a, a science class and I, th- I think it's so cool it's, it's absolutely a, a living laboratory that's right and and we we have a, a This probably isn't written down anywhere, but um, an internal goal, you might say, that that we are going to ranch every square inch of our ownership. Just to stay true to the roots of where you come from and what makes this tick. And we are going to do research on every square inch of our ownership. So you get better at it. And exactly. And then... And we want to use both of those things as an opportunity to engage people at all levels so that we fulfill our education mission, right, on every square inch. So you guys do everything from uh, studying, I know you've, you've even had the grad student collar coyotes out here. To I'm sure you studied the white-tailed deer and lots of habitat uh, effects of cattle operating in the dynamics of that um just when i look through the resume of different research projects that have taken place through the east foundation or are currently taking place it's so diverse uh it's it's like encourage it's it's exciting i think it's exciting well and you know trey maybe speak to this better than i but at the same time we have all these researchers and professors and graduate students and our own scientists that work for the foundation all out here um, doing multiple studies at any given time um, 
we also on this particular ranch and, and also at our San Antonio Viejo Ranch have a facility specifically designed to encourage people to come visit. Mm-hmm. That it, Which is so cool. Uh, you guys built this stage and just said, come use it. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we drove past a facility today. That right. you're like, this is where a lot of uh, school kids come. And I quickly was like, is that the behind the gate? Behind the behind the behind, gates. Behind the gates. Yeah, behind the gates is our is our um, uh, kind of K through twelve education program. So uh, you know, we have an event that we also call our behind the gates event. Um, it's a great name. <clears throat> yeah, it's, and it, it is exactly what it sounds like, right? It's like we want to get kids, and especially down here in the Rio Grande Valley, for our behind the gates event at El Sal's. Um, I think I don't know that a lot of people realize how urban Brownsville and Harlingen are. You know, mm-hmm. there's a million people plus said, living when down. When we were there. driving down down here, you said something to the tune of "There's one or two million people right down." And I had no idea it was that twenty big. miles. Yeah. I still don't. I've right never here. been down there at the bottom of the tortilla chip. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to go. But um, right. I didn't know there was that many people right right here. And so you've got a, a, a whole population, you know, of, of kids down there that that. Main never just a bad, yeah. you have two Montanas <laughs> in Brownsville. That's we got about a million people in Montana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have two Montanas, and that's a part of the state. No, what are you gonna say? You're gonna say Dallas, Austin, Houston, San Antonio. People are gonna say those Amarillo? are the big. Is it in a song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. El and El Paso. <laughs> What's the state population? Well, right right now about. 29 million okay. careening violently towards 35 million. Wow. Yeah. Texas wow. is growing at an astonishing you, rate. You look at like more urbanized every day. Seven to nine percent of Texans live right down here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did not know that. I would have I would have guessed that Brownsville was Bozeman, Montana size or 50,000 people down there at best. Yeah. Well, the not interesting the thing is that's that's really within a about a 15 mile span you know from the border yep Mm -hmm. um but it runs a pretty long ways up the border Mm -hmm. but that's back to your point of there's this huge population here of uh urban families and kids and you guys want to tap into that right we want to i mean they may never step foot on a ranch Mm -hmm. or or have the opportunity to, to visit a ranch even though they live right here on the edge of big ranch country and so to bring them out and expose them uh, to where where their food comes from, wh- why private lands are important in this state, you know, because we're not we're not turning back the clock, we're not rewriting history here. There are private lands in Texas, but why are the the fact that somebody or some organization owns X number of acres? how is that still important to the rest of the people in the state of Texas? Hmm. Where does your clean air, clean water, wildlife, ranching, you know, working landscapes and exposing and educating them on those things so that whether or not they ever go into those fields or own a ranch or work on a ranch, doesn't matter. It's that they're aware. Yeah. You've been exposed. They've, they have an appreciation for it at some point. Um, And that, that comes from, you know, classrooms uh we have the event out here where we'll have 1500 uh fifth graders i think our last one was holy 1500 kids in a five-day span visited this ranch um 
I don't know how many school districts it covered, but it was a lot. That's a lot of kids. Yeah. Plus, throughout the year, we have uh, educators in classrooms um, throughout the state, you know, mostly South Texas, but we've even done. East Foundation does. East Foundation does. Sends people into the classroom. Right. We have well, we have educators that. that work for us that, that are in classrooms doing um, uh, presentations and educating kids on uh topics that actually is it is it star test approved or right so the this in texas the the state has you know guidelines for school curriculum like mm -hmm. what kids are supposed to know their right. essential yeah. knowledge and so our educators have built curricula that are relevant to ranching or rangeland mm -hmm. management or ecosystems function that are that are part of culturally that, relevant that here. state curriculum yeah mm -hmm. And then they serve as really like guest instructors in yeah. classroom. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Tina Buford is our director of education, and uh, they've, like I said, in classroom on the lands. Uh, you know, 2020 kind of forced and and fostered in an era of of uh, video le uh, field lessons. So, which at the end of the day, we're actually reaching more kids. That's right. That's that's a digital asset. Right. Um, uh, so. Everyone. So yeah, that's kind of the the. Gr Jason talked about the number of research, like right now, that researchers that are living on El Sal's and and grad students, um, being grad students, but it goes all the way down the line to where we've got, we've got uh, kids that have in potentially right now, and I, I I don't know if we've actually looked at this, but when you say okay, say the, the behind the gates event that we had three or four weeks ago at El Sal's, fifth graders, right? Then you've got field lessons or cl in, in classroom stuff that span different grades. Then when kids get into high school, we work in conjunction with the Witte Museum in San Antonio for what we call our Land Steward uh, Land Stewardship Ambassador Program, LSA, that are high school kids that apply for and kind of um, go through a, was it 10 weeks, 12 weeks? About 12-week 12 12 program of land stewardship. They become land stewardship ambassadors cool then those kids go to college undergrads right uh some of them may end up working as as seasonal or techs or or interns on the ranch yeah then those interns may go get their master's degree at some point or phd and end right back up on one of our properties as a as a, a post-grad student. So you can track that all the way back yeah, to fifth grade. Say, very forward thinking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We want to, so our, our CEO, Neil Wilkins has a, a, a statement that he makes a lot, which is right now, someone is training the next director of us fish and wildlife. Yeah, they sure are. Someone is, you know, what we want to be is Not sure. the, the yeah. someone that's doing <laughs> yeah. it intentionally. That's a, that's a good, uh, that's a good outlook to have. That's an honest kind of a forecast to have because that you <laughs> damn right that that person that, exists, that person right exists now somewhere. somewhere. Well, and you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, or you know, being from Montana, mm -hmm. somebody's somewhere training the next Secretary of the Interior. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, someone out there is training the next uh, doll sheep guide. Yeah, be dumb enough to climb up a mountain with us. <laughs> And you know, really, we want to we want to be able to have an impact on on all of those things because there is a public benefit to private land stewardship, and we want people to see that. Like I mentioned before, help people not have a one dimensional view of the world. Yeah, 
God, I feel like that perspective should just be <laughs> replicated into a lot of different avenues right. of culture in the <laughs> world. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would be cool to talk with Tina sometime about more of the educational stuff. It's a, it's a whole other – I mean, it's a podcast. It's podcast a whole, and it's yeah, a, the whole, yeah, the whole outreach. They yeah. do so much on that. Uh, but back to the ranch and things that are going on here. Uh, what I saw today was a, a lot of areas of the ranch, not a lot, s- some areas of the ranch that had been recently burned. Um, and if you're familiar with land stewardship and habitat improvement, this is probably no surprise to you that uh, – fire is part of the management plan Uh, if you're not it probably sounds very counterintuitive Uh, and this is kind of an elementary uh, ecology lesson but turns out burning a landscape from time to time is wildly beneficial tell me about some of the the burning schedules and the benefits and uh and maybe some of the things you're studying along the way sure well as you mentioned you know prescribed fire is an essential management tool and in, in in these systems that that developed with fire you know wildfire that's right um there it, it's essential to maintain certain features of of this landscape like the the relatively open grassland portions of this ranch are only that way because of periodic fire from time immemorial, you know, not not just us. Before before humans were doing it, yeah, it was coming from above. Right. And so, um, but the the application of that on the landscape in a way that, that generates the most benefit at the least risk is something that, that we're continuously interested in. So, you know, Trey mentioned earlier that one of the opportunities we have is to to do research at scale right and so this ranch is is part of a long-term project um, where we we've taken about about 16,000 acres of this ranch so more than half of the total ranch area and subdivided it into plots that average about a section in size in section mile by mile Right, a square mile, which is what four seven six hundred and forty acres, six six forty, and and we're, they're not all exactly that, but they're approximately around that size, just so people have a frame of reference. Mm-hmm. And and what we're looking at, and then so it's designed like a a controlled experiment, you mm-hmm. know, just spread out over a lot of country, and and what we're interested in there is what's what's the best season to burn down here. You hmm. know, winter or summer so, so what would be the difference well you know in the in the winter time we typically obviously have cooler temperatures i mean mm-hmm. that's a relative term down here you know might be 80 instead of 100 but <laughs> seemed pretty warm today to me um, <laughs> i was sweating and 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 a little bit higher humidity in the winter and so that means that the fire as it moves across the ground is going to not heat up as much right doesn't create quite as great a surface temperature okay and that's beneficial for some species, um, you know, so it doesn't do as much harm, you might say. Flora and fauna. I mean, everything's exactly. affected by this, yeah. Um, the Whereas if you burn in the summertime, you typically have higher surface temperatures, right. lower humidity, a more intense fire event, which is scorched earth. Well, yeah. So Maybe. If, if your goal, though, is to control woody species, which 
woody encroachment is a significant issue. You need a hotter fire. Then a hotter fire might be beneficial. And so, so which one's best? Well, it might depend on, on the outcome you're after. The other thing down here that, that there's a lot of interest in, it, in is, is what is the appropriate return interval of fire? So should this landscape burn every three years, every five years, every decade? Hmm. Um, and there's, you know, been other work done. And so, so here, this, this long-term project that we have, we, we burn either in the summer or the winter mm -hmm. at either three-year or five-year intervals. And so by looking at all of those combinations, so you can say, well, we have a winter short interval compared to a summer long interval. Let's see what happens. And let's document the outcome. Let's take some that. notes <laughs> and see if we can pass this pass this uh, message along. And we're interested in in the vegetation response, obviously, you know. And and but how does that affect cattle grazing? How does that affect the the prey base? So. Of the students that are out here right now, one of their tasks is to go around all these fire plots and evaluate small mammal populations. And rabbits, bir little birds. Smaller. Yeah. Yeah. So, so primarily, you know, mice, rats, small prey species. Sure. And, and they do that in a really careful way that lets us determine whether or not the fire regime influenced the dynamics of those populations and how. Sure. Because... You know, we get, I, I mean, I, I get kind of teased about that, I'm going to be honest with you. So y'all have people out there counting rats. <laughs> and, hey, it's <laughs> dynamic, man. But, you know, the thing is, that's the foundational food base, right? Oh, yeah. On this landscape for predators. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, so we also are interested in, in how that affects a variety of birds, ground-nesting birds in particular. So bobwhite quail are, mm -hmm. are a really important species. That's what I hear. And But many other ground-nesting birds that, that utilize these grassland landscapes um, were interested in, in those ecological outcomes as well as in the outcomes associated with grazing productivity. Right. And so, you know, our goal, we've this study was implemented. Um, we're, we're in about the eighth year of it now. And it's our intention to continue doing this for decades to come. And write the book on what these different choices right. result in. And, and, we, and we conduct that project with our, our folks, you know, on the ground, but also with that project is under the direction scientifically of uh, Dr. Sandra Rideout Hanzak, who's a faculty member at Texas A&M University at Kingsville with the Caesar Clayburg Wildlife Research Institute. Hmm. Her graduate students are involved with that. We have graduate students from Texas A&M, um, from Texas A&M Kingsville. That's you guys just have this like open door policy. Like, at, at you cur curious to d advance research in public knowledge uh, for better stewardship tomorrow? Come on in. Absolutely. I think that's really cool. Um, and I also think that those, f the burnt landscapes are gorgeous. Mm -hmm. The contrast it's between amazing, the yeah. black, the black land, uh, the, you know, the undertones, you can tell it's been burnt. Um, and the contrast of that with the lime green vegetation coming back, I think it's really pretty. 
Oh. What's super interesting about the uh, uh, we were talking about this the other day that the um, last time we were down here was the most recent burn, which was four weeks ago, four to six weeks ago. Yeah, almost four, right out four weeks. Ago. Which was the right here, just to the south of us. Yeah, right. We here were south in it today. That we were in the day. Mm-hmm. And what we saw today, there has that was four weeks ago, and there's been no significant or measurable rainfall on that landscape since the burn, mm-hmm. except but for last s- night or whatever. We got. Yeah, the yeah. half inch or whatever that we finally got. But since the burn, you can imagine that thing burned. Right. And then we go out there in four weeks, and it's looked like a golf course. Yeah, that's the, right. The, gr- the green. You said that this morning. You're like, man, I tell you what, after you know couple weeks after these burns some of these places look like saint andrews yeah looks like a manicured golf course out here because yeah. just all the shoots of vegetation are kind of at that uniform height yeah. and it, it does the rolling sand dunes and landscapes it's, it's pretty fantastic and you know we're we've actually been um, very dry uh, we we've had really no <laughs> no substantial rainfall at this ranch well except for the last day or so oh yeah is that right? right well we ran into the ranch manager today mm-hmm. is that his title al alan yeah we ran into him hell of a guy would love to talk to him uh and he said it's a national holiday he said it's a national holiday yeah and i was like what holidays he's like we got half an inch of rain right yeah <laughs> <Take it off laughs> i was today. like that's a good one and it's probably the first measurable rainfall that we've had here at this location since um, maybe November. Yeah, Thanksgiving probably. That is harsh. That and is, just sounds dry. And so are we in a – Which this is one of our wettest ranches, so if that tells you anything. Wow. Y'all work in some arid places. Well, it's, it's you know, we're uh, – this environment down here is, is episodic, you might say. So. Yeah, the droughts. And really, you know – the weather pattern we've been in, um, winters are actually dry when we have a La Nina weather, weather pattern that we've been in now for almost four years. Hmm. But should you say we're in a we're in a drought right now? Is that um, a tough question to answer? It, it is a little bit of a tough like, question. Wait, are you talking about a drought this week or is <laughs> right. this yeah. year? I mean, there's a strict years? definition, and if you looked at the drought okay. severity index, we're we're on it mm-hmm. as probably moderately dry right now. That's based on deviation from normal rainfall. But again, our normal rainfall in January, February is low. Yeah. It does, it's a dry period of the year. So now that we're at the end of March and, you know, received a little bit of rain yesterday evening, but um, really pretty this, dry. this next 30 days or so, um, we're going to be, we're pretty uncomfortable now. We wish it would. It you guys praying for rain. Well, maybe, maybe. You, uh, your curious look, you maybe not praying for anything. You're just going to study what happens either way. Well, you know, on, on a personal, emotional level, I sure wish it would rain, you know, I mean, we, it, do, we do raise cattle. It, does, Turn, it, it turns does, out the cows and the wildlife like it. Yeah. You know. It makes you feel better. Um, on a pragmatic level, we accept that the environment we work in is characterized by highly variable rainfall Yeah, and, and drought of varying durations is just a feature of this ecosystem yeah so there's going to be another one down the road right you're either if you're just in one then you're just starting (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. and and so really it's about how do we devise strategies 
and mindsets for management that that yes I, I wish it would rain abundantly right that that would make things better but but it's not going to do that consistently ever right so our our management mindset the things we're curious about are or how might we develop strategies and tools and mechanisms that allow us to cope the most effectively with that variability? Yeah. While addressing the need to maintain some stability operationally, right, and maintain habitat for wildlife. And that's part of the complexity of, of land stewardship is, is being able to achieve, you know, man's goals, you might say, in the context of, of, god's whim you know yeah. <laughs> so yeah absolutely but but you know it sure makes it interesting right it's job security i mean <laughs> yeah you're never gonna answer all the questions right but we're sure gonna try <laughs> you guys are trying yeah um i had two other talking points for us before we wrap it up the cattle fever tick i'd never heard of this and that that's just my ignorance of i don't live in the cattle world and I don't live in Texas or South Texas. What is a cattle fever tick? Well, so it's interesting, you know, if, if you're from the Midwest or, or from, you know, the, the Western Plains, Montana, for example, um, the reason that there's a cattle fever tick eradication program in the United States is because when cattle from South Texas were trailed to the the plain states for shipping or um, to Montana to populate range up there during westward expansion, all the local cattle died after Texas cattle were brought in mm. from Texas. Fever. So we blew the whistle. Well, you You're know, every, everybody complained about it enough. <laughs> no, these Texas cows <laughs> keep killing stuff. And, and, it, and, and so, so cattle fever or, tick fever or texas fever kind of goes by all those names is is a disease that's caused by a parasite called babesia that's carried by ticks kind of like so the ticks just the host the tick is the vector the vector that carries cows the, the host in the same way that ticks carry diseases like rickettsial diseases like rocky mountain spotted fever yeah i'm familiar with that one which is a, a different category you know of, of disease but kind of has the same history um, so, so this, this parasite really that's carried by the ticks infects the cattle. And this parasite chooses to live on just this one breed of tick. It lives inside them. It's like in their spit. Oh, wow. That's and <laughs> And so when they, when they attach to a host, yep. they transmit that into the host while they're taking their blood meal. And what, what does it do to a cow? Well, for cattle that are naive to it, it'll cause, you know, fever and emaciation. And, and in many cases, to cattle that are completely naive to it, um, they'll die from it. And now cattle that were raised in South Texas, and I'm talking in the late 1800s, right? They got some, some tough blood. Quote, quote, unquote, naturalized to the area, right? They developed immunity to sure. that. And so they would be have the appearance of being fine, but as soon as a tick dropped off of them and got on a, a naive animal, you know, in Kansas or something, then that would typically kill them. Yeah, you you see that in other 
parts of wildlife management, like pneumonia sweeping through sheep populations. They're like, well, these domestic sheep have had it for thousands of years, and right. they live with it fine. Right. The second they, they kiss noses with a bighorn, right. it, it drops dead. And so that that's kind of what what cattle fever or tick fever is, and it's carried by, you know, two very specific species of ticks that are endemic to Mexico and historically parts of Texas. But, you know, the, the United States made a dedicated effort to eradicate fever ticks. Yeah, that's what I've, I've got in my notes here, that 1910 mm-hmm. kicked off the 40-year uh, purge. Right. Uh, and then there were no ticks documented for quite a while. For quite a while. And it, there's always been maintained a buffer zone along along the border because the ticks are native to Mexico, right? You, you, we've, we've pushed them south, so to speak, but hmm. you can't get rid of them entirely because they're just part of that system. I see. And so the... You know, since the early 1900s, that that buffer zone has been maintained, and and of course, we talked a moment ago about at that same time period, wildlife populations have been significantly depleted. Right. But as wildlife populations, under sort of a different stewardship paradigm and different management in the 20th century, recovered, well, with the Many of some them problems. Are, are natural carriers right. for those ticks. And so, again, you, you solve one problem sometimes to the creation Bring back of another. Of one. another. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I, you know, if anybody out there is in the cattle industry, you're going to pull your hair out listening to me. But um, in Montana, we live in fear, the cattle industry lives in fear of brucellosis being transmitted from a buffalo or an elk to a cow but it's never been it's never happened it's never been documented that a buffalo passed brucellosis to cows so it's this uh fear fear of possibility fear of possibility that really drives a lot of uh emotions and policy making and um cultural kind of norms um, popular beliefs if it makes you feel better texas just got declared brucellosis free about like six years ago so (laughs) so we're familiar with that one uh so my question is like is is that the fever tick uh the cattle fever tick as well it's like the fear of possibility or is it is it a alive and well problem today are we losing cows today from this it's, it's a little of both. Yeah. So the, there is a reality that, that the ticks and the disease that they carry does exist, again, in Mexico for sure. And occasionally, because there's, there's a vigilant effort to evaluate livestock and wildlife in this part of the state because we're adjacent to an area where known active infections have been documented. known active infection mm-hmm. infections are yeah and and we you know people would say it's an infested area meaning that the ticks are present and that it's been documented that they're carrying babesia and so this would be this is the front line for that essentially quite literally, literally. so yeah the, the highway that you drove in on you noticed that there's a high fence along that highway on our side of the right. highway um that highway is the the zone of demarcation so wow. 
south of that highway is an area that's considered actively infested and we're considered an adjacent area so we're not infected but literally are across the highway from it mm-hmm. and that's the that's a the little more real yeah the reason for that high fence on our south boundary is not to keep anything in it's, it's to, to keep, keep it out keep some stuff out and if you if you kind of look at a map from where we're sitting it is continuous rangeland low fences all the way from here to basically the south side of Corpus Christi, Texas. Which so- which sounds beautiful and a, a good thing. It is. It, uh, um, that, on many levels, that's a good thing. Uh, you don't have these large mammal barriers uh, and these ecological and habitat barriers that it's a fantastic thing. Unless, unless you're we're trying to contain the outbreak <laughs> yeah. of a disease <laughs> that can be carried by. Can't have your cake. You need it to. So, so we're, you know, it's a really important issue in, in the state and in our national economy. I mean, with the transport of livestock. And yeah. It's obviously important to people that operate livestock businesses in this area. I th- and I think to, to clarify the high fence, right, the, what we're keeping out is white-tailed deer from the south. Nail guy. Nail guy antelope. Those are the two. And, and both, um, both white-tailed deer and nilgai have been identified as as susceptible to the tick in other words ticks have been recovered from them um there's kind of an open question you know we talked about some of the mysteries of nilgai right like do we know everything about them absolutely not huh um so we we know that ticks have been recovered from nilgai in south texas i think eight times ever <laughs> a fe- of, of cattle fever tick a cattle not, fever not tick. just a normal tick yeah right yeah there's we have oh, we've recovered ticks yeah on today. Abundance <laughs> of ticks i didn't want to i didn't want to <laughs> yeah. burst your bubble or ruin your day but i saw one on a nil guy today <laughs> yeah no no yeah we have but i was assured have, it was the safe kind we have about 10 different species of tick here. oh gosh nightmare fuel um and so so the fever tick specifically um i think i i know of eight documented cases where one has been recovered from a nil guy that's so crazy to me that this little parasite only chooses to live inside this one tick mm-hmm. i mean the natural world never ceases to it's amaze amazing, me but how well and, and why just the one and cattle are the absolute preferred host for those ticks and why is that a lot of blood i think you know, it has something to do with their ability to attach to them, and I don't know. They smell good. It's, it's and, and maybe there's some symbiotic relationship with that parasite. And that so they will attach to deer. And the more cattle there are on a landscape, the less likely it is that the ticks attach to deer. But if you remove mm. cattle from the landscape, they're going to go somewhere. That's you know? right. And and like I said, the abundance of recovery from nilgai is pretty low, but it's documented as possible. What we don't know for sure is if the nilgai is actually susceptible to the parasite. So it's possible that, that a tick could attach to a nilgai, but not transmit the disease. In other words, the nilgai could be a dead-end host, because once the tick mm. falls off of the animal, that's the completion of its life cycle, right? And it's going to lay eggs and more ticks come but if that if that animal reservoir can't harbor the infection 
then the next tick that bites them gets a blood meal that's not infected, right? Right. And so we don't really know for for certain whether or not Nilgai carry the the parasite itself. Um, we are involved in a project right now. To yeah, I was going to say, I, bet, <laughs> I know I know some guys that probably look into this yeah. for you, and because because that's a really important question, you know. Yeah, on, it, on so many levels. I mean, from the wildlife level, obviously the cattle right. industry as a whole. That's a, this would be a big point of concern. And and you know, we were talking a moment ago about well, Nilgai are non-native, so should they be eradicated? And and again, a one-dimensional view of that might be well, they're potential fever tick carriers. That'd be a good reason to get rid of them. Yeah, but. But white-tailed deer are much more prevalent potential carrier yeah. than Nilgai based on documented occurrence. But we don't want to get rid of those. But they're native, That's right? right? So, so again, you know, we don't want to have a one-dimensional view of that. We, we, we're quite interested, of course, along with the USDA and many others, in, in understanding as much as we can about how this disease is transmitted and how it functions so that reasonable control measures could be developed. For white-tailed deer, you might have seen some deer feeders driving around the ranch here. And, um, very, very few. Not like other Texas ranches I've been on. Right, yeah. But I come to find out, what are those feeders actually doing? Yeah, so those those feeders are actually maintained by the Texas Animal Health Commission and USDA's Animal Plant, Plant Health Inspection Service. And they dispense... Uh, corn that's been treated with ivermectin which is a parasite control agent for livestock and, and deer she's serving up some medicine right in order to reduce the carriage of ticks yeah. on deer and and it's been a pretty successful program here on this ranch and here you can consider it prevention right we don't have fever ticks right but in the event that a, that a deer crossed our fence right we would prefer that they ate some medicine that would kill the ticks. Right. Um, interest proactive. Mm-hmm. You can't bait Nilgai. I learned a lot of interesting things about Nilgai, Nilgai today. Why is that? Why are quite, they don't like corn? Apparently not. They just, don't know. They won't go to a feeder. They won't go to a feeding station. You know what's more interesting than that is they all go to the bathroom in the same spot. Yeah, they will go to a latrine, you know. and Which is a fancy, maybe French word for toilet. And uh, what that means is, if you have no idea what we're talking about, I didn't know until today, uh, Nilgai will all go take a crap in the same spot, and you will see these literal mounds a foot or two tall of six foot across of uh of nilgai droppings that i uh, assume or learned that they use that as kind of a territory marking indicator uh the only other animal that i know of that does that is a otter they do have the toilet rocks and i think it's kind of the same thing where like the this pack of otters kind of is marking its territory and a lot of animals mark their territory, but it's usually with their urine mm-hmm. or, or physical altercation of the, the landscape, whether it's a, a deer scraping a tree and then peeing in the dirt under it. But I can't think of any other animal that uses its feces to do this. It was very, very weird. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's an unusual behavior in North America. Are there other antelope species that do this? 
Yeah, so there's, right. there's a category of, of antelope species, you know, predominantly in Africa. We mentioned kudu earlier. Yeah. So kudu are in that category. They are. And, huh. and they'll use these kind of common latrine areas as a territorial marker as well. So uh, wild. Maybe it's because their horns are too small that they can't really make a ruckus <laughs> on a tree or something. Yeah. And, you know, so interestingly, again, we, we know more about Nilgai in Texas than we do in, in their native range. But but the, the, the latrines are, were a real mystery, and they're still somewhat mysterious. We know as much as we know about them now that they are, in fact, appear to be territorial markers, hmm. that they're predominantly visited by bulls. Is that right? Which is why we think they're territorial markers. Sure. Um, that that cows visit them primarily when they're receptive, like when they're in estrus. Yeah. And so they're sort of let it be known say, that they're yeah, uh, hey, in the neighborhood I'm looking the market, for a boyfriend. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and that that many animals will use them, but certain bulls will predominantly use certain latrines again, indicating territory. And we know that because of DNA samples from the feces. Hmm. And all of that work was done right here. Wow. And in order to answer, the, try to resolve the question of what what does that mean? And and then it, are there any management solutions that could be developed from that? For example, if you know that if bulls and cows all visited the latrines equally all the time, well, that'd be a great place to mount some sort of little automated spray rig that could spray tick medicine on them. Also, seems like a recipe for like disease transmission. Yeah, anytime you get mam mammals congregating in one spot, whether it's at a food source or a toilet, it seems like maybe a good recipe for uh, possible disease transmission. But doesn't seem to be a detrimental thing to them. Doesn't seem to be, and and maybe that's because they don't actually all show up at the same time well i showed up this morning and trey said i could not use one no <laughs> yeah he said that was not allowed <laughs> well you might might disrupt their behavior you I have to start your own yeah. you can't use another one. uh last thing i want to talk about with you guys this has been an awesome conversation um is the small cat of south texas better known as the ocelot which is really uh sexy talking point for conservation efforts um and you guys do some really great work here with them uh, and i've learned more about ocelot their current state in america and uh what the future may hold for them and what what the reality of them actually mysteriously might be um but the long and short of it is the ocelot is one of six wild cats in north america uh, predominantly lives in Mexico and Central America. But we have, historically, ocelots were all over Texas, uh, right? Up to Arkansas. And in the last 200 years, we did a good job at getting rid of them, maybe by accident. Um, but now there's a very small population of ocelot that live in the United States today in South Texas. And a large portion of those are on the ranch I'm sitting on right now. And I'm, I'm a cat guy, so this is very interesting to me and so cool to me to to even just, like, share the ranch with these cats. Even if I don't see one, to know that they're out there is just really special to me. Um, so tell me a little bit about the history 
of the ocelot down here and the history of the research y'all have done and what the future kind of looks like well you know like i said ocelots are are really interesting um and for the the history that you've described and you know how do you how do you have a, a cat with such wide distribution that all of a sudden has hardly any distribution in the united states and and what brought you there why are they still here you know on this ranch well mm. a lot of that goes back to the things we've been talking about you know large intact landscapes with relatively low disturbance and yeah absolutely you carve it all up there's no way that small cat right. is going to and so prevail. so the 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 history i guess of ocelot research kind of in this region where the last kind of populations in in the united states are known to exist um, kind of goes back almost 40 years now with the interest of a couple of researchers out of Texas A&M at Kingsville and kind of their interest in in these wildcat species that, yeah. that were once at least prevalent might be strong for other ones like jaguarundis and jaguars, which also this would have been part of their historic range. Sure. Um, and just trying to document whether these species had actually been extirpated from the United States or not. So that was like kind of are the they still here? Yeah, are they even still here? Yeah, because you're a cat guy, right? Like they're hard to find, even if you're looking for them. Boy, you you're telling me. And, <laughs> and and even if you know they're supposed to be there, they're hard to find. So if you're not even sure if they're there, you got hounds. How do you? <laughs> Sounds like you know what you're talking about. So um, so that that's. You know, in, in a, and then they were documented. Forty years ago, this started. Kind of the beginning, yes, sir. So they started. They started looking for them in this region. You know, and lo and behold, found some. And and so since that, God, time, that had to have been cool. Can you imagine walking up to that trap? Yeah, and that had to have been. And they're difficult it's like to you trap. Caught, it's like you caught Santa. Yeah, you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you're not supposed to be here, right? Or probably, you know, I, I'm glad you're here, but. <laughs> and so. Um, so really, you know, over time, a, a lot of effort was put in and has been put into, um, I guess I would say, you know, East Foundation's engagement over the last decade, a lot of effort has been put into characterization of their habitat preferences and how they compete or not, you know, how they share the landscape with other mesopredators like bobcats, which are quite prevalent here, sure. and coyotes, which are also quite prevalent here. You know, do they compete directly? I mentioned before we're, we're interested in these small mammal species, right, as an ecological indicator, but that also gives us some indication about prey availability and food selection. Um, so we've spent a lot of energy in trying to understand the ecology of ocelots. And a concern is, is that if you, if you just, what if you just study them until they're all gone? Well, that, that seems to be less than constructive right yeah he's like boy y'all blew that one <coughs> you had it <laughs> you found so, it so you know more recently we've really been working with with many partners um you know including the u.s fish and wildlife service who has a refuge on the coast about i guess as the crow flies you know 35 40 miles from here and they've got documented ocelot down they there. do um and a few. We have, I mean, probably the, you know, it's difficult to estimate a total population size, but those estimates here range from about 35 to 60. On this ranch? Yes, sir. Wow. 
um, and they're at, you know, and so most time you'd say, well, 35 or something, but, um, but there's a range around sure. that. And they're at the, at the Laguna Atascosa Refuge. Um, their documented population size is about half that. So kind of 18 to, to 25, um, that are known. Mm -hmm. So we've more recently kind of turned our attention to, to thinking about, okay, what needs to happen in order for, for this species not to blink out while we're watching? And genetic diversity is a problem that, that always exists with these really small kind of isolated populations, right? Do they become um, inbred effectively? That's interesting to me, though, because sometimes that's an issue and sometimes it's not. Right. Like I hunted sika deer in Maryland this past year. They had thousands and thousands of these sika deer. They all came from like four or five. To me, it was like, how how did inbreeding not? How is it out there? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, and then uh, other populations, you you got thirty of them. Well, kiss them goodbye. Right. Not enough. And so so that's a concern. So one of the things that we've been working on is, um, in conjunction with partners from University of Tennessee and you know the Cincinnati Zoo. Hey, shout out! I, vo I volunteered there when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so in fact, the one of the leading, you know, reproductive physiologists for for exotic cats in the world is at Cincinnati Zoo. His name is Bill Swanson. Oh, cool! And he's a partner with us on on some of our work here. Um, we're trying to to determine if if we can successfully breed ocelots in captivity using ai not like chat gpt ai but like artificial insemination that's AI. right yeah yeah i'm glad you clarified <laughs> yeah uh, it used to not have require clarification but um so i i learned a little bit about this day so you guys are literally collecting semen from, from wild, oce wild ocelot down here and trying to successfully breed captive females with this correct and to see if it takes, if it works, and that would bring genetic diversity to this genetic thread of ocelot right here. Right. We would get some, some diversity introduced, and we would also then have additional animals that could be released. Hypothetically released. And augment, augment, augment existing yeah. populations or perhaps someday even establish new populations. Seed a new population. Yeah, it's such a sensitive – it's such a – you know, we start – flirting with endangered species yeah. uh i think a lot of people get freaked out you know if i ranch if landowners perhaps uh don't want don't want that black-footed ferret on my property well uh, you know that that's a really interesting point and so um so i'm going to give you a personal perspective right yep. about that which is yes there's, I've been involved with prairie dogs and, and other species that, you know, the, um, you know, prairie chickens and, and you name it, right? Sage grouse and the Great Basin and where, where the conflict between listing of species and the utilization of landscapes for other purposes has, has been significant conflict. Yeah, there's time. a big dilemma. And... And in a way, you know, everybody involved with that's probably, I'm going to say, trying to do what they think is the right and best thing. But the incentives are, are, are not very well aligned. And so 
um, one of the things because ocelots themselves are really interesting and, and they're cool creatures and you know we have sort of direct interest in, and we didn't ask for them to be on this ranch right, right. they're here and so we want to be the best stewards of the resources we're given oversight of that we can and, and we feel like that means we need to, to work on these things but the bigger picture of that is there an opportunity for for problem solving for some innovation and conservation efforts that that change the nature of of how we perceive the management of endangered species and their ultimate recovery yeah, likelihood it's, it's not it's not a problem to have an endangered species on your ranch it's a privilege like absolutely if you normalized it absolutely if, if you created a culture where like no we've got them we advocate the research of them and invite this stuff in and there's no take a look at us there's no repercut you know well but it, the, it opens the, the gate maybe to for more people to right. the 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 fear you know you asked this about the fever tick right is, yeah is it is it the fear of the problem or the actual problem well in the case of endangered species policy implementation there's pretty clear historical examples where it changed the game for for somebody yes yeah, some people might get screwed over on something yeah um and again the the people involved in those decisions were all trying to abide by the law and do what what they believed was their duty but but it obviously has has not always been successful and has created this sort of atmosphere of fear mm -hmm. so for me one of the reasons why it's really important for us to work with ocelots is that that we are willing to engage in that process in a way that hopefully downstream yields some innovation in, in the policy and implementation and partnerships with U.S. Fish and Wildlife mm -hmm. so that that they can better accomplish the, the goals that they are obligated to accomplish under the law, right? Like they're, they're following the rules. Hmm. And, and too often, you know, I mean, I'm from Texas, right? Like we're suspicious of all things government. That's right. And me too. But but you have to respect the fact that 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 agency was created by an act of Congress, right? In order to execute certain things yeah. for the good of our country, they're doing what they believe to be their duty. But can we kind of figure out with them a way forward that allows them to still do their duty? but in a way that actually provides an incentive for private landowners to be engaged in that process without fear of losing what they maybe spent generations acquiring. Yeah, and I think that in a nutshell, that just this whole ocelot thing and your guys' approach to it with your partnerships and your invitation of research with it is just a great example of the East Foundation leading by example and pioneering new alternate uh options for for rangeland management ranching science and education yeah we we'd sure like to enable better decision making and that that's not just for operators right but for the people who are charged with implementing policy the people who write those policies and and the larger public you know as Trey mentioned through our education efforts help people understand these systems and the public benefits of private lands so that as voters they make better decisions mm -hmm. that ensure that 
that land stewards have the capacity to continue to operate into the future. Well, I think you guys are doing great things, and I'm I'm honored to be here and to learn more about the East Foundation and to experience this ranch in particular. And um, it's it's just been wildly educational for me, and I hope more people get involved and support the East Foundation. And cheers to you guys! Tip of the hat for for what you do. It's really impressive stuff, and you're writing the book on you know tomorrow's land stewardship. And I'm, I'm glad that book's being written. Well, we're awfully glad you're here. I appreciate it, guys. Let's have some dinner, huh? Yep. Thanks so much.